0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com weightloss.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. No one alive today, indeed no one who ever lives, gets through life without experiencing loss. Some have called bereavement and grief the terrible price we pay for having loved. We love, we attach, and when we lose those sustaining relationships, we grieve. Today's guest has spent her entire career exploring, analyzing, and helping people deal with the universal and extraordinarily painful experience of grieving. Mary Frances O'Connor, a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist, is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab, investigating the effects of grief on the brain and the body. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute Series on Ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm honored to welcome Mary Frances O'Connor to the show today to talk about her important book, The Grieving Brain. Mary Frances O'Connor, welcome to the podcast.
0: I'm so glad to be here, Renee.
1: And so am I. (laughs) (laughs) Your book integrates your own life experiences along with what you've learned in the lab and from your patients, so I thought it would be a good idea to start there. You write that your mother was depressed and you were her mood regulator during your adolescence. Tell us a bit about what that was like and whether there's something about having a depressed mom that evokes a grief-like feeling in the child?
0: Well, it's it's very complex, isn't it? Um, m- many of us have a type of mental illness that runs through our family, and, and in my maternal family, depression runs through ours. And so the context for uh, thinking about this depression was really that it is distinct from severe grieving that can happen. My mother died when I was 26, and I experienced depression after that. And I came to recognize through many years of research that it is distinct from grief or even from what we now call prolonged grief disorder. Um, And I have no doubt that part of the influence on my own depression was my mom's experience as she was trying to raise us of her her mental state, but also just the genetic component that, that clearly runs through my family.
1: Well, explain how, for the brain, the death of a loved one is a problem to solve and that grief is a type of learning that is learning to live without that person.
0: Well, unlike depression, grief is very much focused on the person who has died. And so for many of us, it is trying to understand that this person who you love so much and who, for the brain, you know, there's this bond with, this bond that says, I will always be there for you and you will always be there for me, that... When a loved one dies, is very hard to reconcile because they're not there, and so it takes a long time for the brain to really be able to predict the absence of this person instead of their presence. Um, that's uh, you know a real learning curve, and it leads us from everything uh, you know, picking up your phone to text the person something that happened in your day. And then realizing, of course, that you can't text them to bigger learning curves like, how am I going to parent my child if my if my husband or wife has died? Or what is retirement going to look like uh, if, if my spouse is no longer here? And so the learning curve um, necessarily means that the brain is involved and and it takes time.
1: Uh And yet you say it isn't time that heals if mm. healing is the right word mm.
0: yes, well, this is the uh this is the interesting thing about how the brain works, so it really takes experience in order to understand what is this world like for me now, and who am I now um For example, I use the word daughter to describe myself, but daughter suggests there's two people in the world. And so trying to understand what does it mean to be a good daughter if my mother isn't alive? And so I think when you think about it that way, there are so many things that have to be learned.
1: Including who am I without this relationship? Exactly. Uh, In in your book, you distinguish grief from grieving. Uh, Talk about that a little. What's the difference between them?
0: Well, grief, you know, is that feeling that just overwhelms you. In the moment, you know, it's that wave and you think, I'm just not even going to get through this moment. Um, But when we talk about grieving, It is a process, right? It's the way that grief changes over time without ever going away. And so, you know, the first hundred times you have that wave of grief, you may think, this is just, this is unbearable. But the 101st time, even if grief feels just as bad as it did the last time, it may also feel familiar, And so it's more that over time, our relationship to our grief changes. We get better at comforting ourselves or or reaching out to someone else for comfort while we're grieving. And so that change means that it won't feel the same as it did during those acute days and weeks of grief, but that Grief doesn't actually go away because anytime we become aware of this loss, we are going to have a wave of grief, even if it's been years later. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with our grieving. It just speaks about that moment and not the process, the learning curve we've been on.
1: That's an important point for listeners to know that if even many years after a loss, mentioning the person's name brings uh, tears to one's eyes or a choking sensation in the throat or chest, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you're going over the edge. That it, that's, that's right. a perfectly normal. Uh, experience.
0: That's right, and you know, often at holiday times, for example, or on the anniversary of the death of the person, it is very common, is very normal to experience more waves of grief. And again, sometimes I think people think, "Oh, I thought I was doing so well, and now I'm not doing so well." I, yeah. I don't think it's actually that you're not doing well. It's that there are lots of cues in those. Uh, you know, moments in time that remind us of our loved one. And like any emotion, they are going to arise in the in the times when we're cued for them. It's still, uh, it, it doesn't mean that they that they're not normal. It doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong.
1: It's a new definition of what doing well is. Doing That's, well includes having these experiences. That is
0: exactly it, Renee, that really, once we lose a loved one, it's sort of we incorporate a new aspect into our life. And that aspect is we carry the absence of someone. And we also carry the knowledge, the really deep, intimate knowledge of, of mortality, and those things change who we are. So it is a it's a new way of being in the world. But you know, being married is a new way of being in the world there are many there are many moments in our life where something happens and afterward we are profoundly changed
1: right absolutely now you're a scientist and uh therefore uh you've systematized what you've learned both clinically and uh in the lab mm. uh in and in, into uh what you call a dual process model of coping with bereavement. And you've also described trajectories of grieving. So share that model with us uh, so we can come along with you in the way you (laughs) look at the phenomenon.
0: Well, the dual process model of coping uh, was developed by... um, Two Dutch researchers, Maggie Stroba and Henk Schutt. And in many ways, it was a reaction to earlier models that we had, like the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Five Stages of Grief. Um, And, you know, the five stages of grief suggested uh, a number of experiences that people have while they're grieving anger and denial and even acceptance. Um, But Stroba and Schutt really wanted to point out that there isn't a linear process that we're going through. And so they talked about two different kinds of stressors that grieving people have to deal with. And on the one hand, there are the loss-related stressors. This is what you and I typically think of as grief. So this is dealing with all those emotions that come along with grief, including guilt and yearning and blame. and anxiety. Uh, And on the other hand, there's dealing with restoring a meaningful life, what they call restoration stressors. And these are things like, you know, how do I do the taxes if, you know, my, my, my partner's always done our taxes? Or how am I going to decide, you know, when I can clean out the closet um, of their clothes, and how do I um, navigate, you know, this this wedding I have to go to, if my own child, who is the age of the people getting married, is has died. So it's all of those stressors that deal with how do I restore life now. But the genius, I think, of this model is that rather than being a linear process where we go from A to B, Stroba and Schutt talked about the idea that there's oscillation. That we go back and forth between these two kinds of stressors. And sometimes people get stuck in one or the other. So they're so focused on the loss stressors that they aren't attending to how do I restore a meaningful life in the present. And sometimes people get so stuck on restoring a meaningful life that they neglect to process all the grief related feelings and thoughts and and you know behaviors and and therefore those will keep you know recurring and so really the sign of mental health is this ability to go back and forth between dealing with the loss and dealing with the present moment and to do that in such a way that over time these stressors crop up less frequently
1: and that sometimes surprises the friends or family members close mm. to the bereaved person. Yeah. Uh, the, getting involved in how am I going to pay taxes or take over this other thing that my spouse used to do seems okay and normal and yep. back to the world. And then if the next day they're crying in, in their soup, yes. uh, people people around them get, uh, become alarmed and confused. Yes.
0: I have a great example of that, actually. My my father was a widower for a long time um, since my mother died young, and he sort of adopted other widowers in my small hometown. And uh, he called me once and and said that a good friend of his – um, who had lost his wife. Um, he said that he wanted to keep showing him photo albums of the places that they had traveled together. And he did this sort of over and over and over again. And and my dad said, I'm not even sure if I should be encouraging this. Should I be trying to sort of help him close those photo albums and move on? And I said, well, dad, when I hear you talk about your friendship with this man, I also hear you talk about, you know, doing volunteer projects in town together and going bowling and, you know, all sorts of other things that the two of you do. And so I know that he is also uh, dealing with these sort of restoration stressors. So I said, you know, I think if you can bear it, you should just let him tell you how important his wife was and in what ways and where they went and what they did. And, you know, he called me a few months later and he said, you know, he stopped opening those photo albums as much. He said, nothing specific changed. It's just over time, he seems to need to do it less. And he said, I think if you hadn't encouraged me, I probably would have tried to dissuade him from doing that. And clearly it was something he needed to do. So I think it's such a great example of, as long as there are many aspects to the way that you're coping, then focusing on the loss as one of those is, is very healthy.
1: You write about different trajectories of grieving. Mm. and, well, maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that before I go on to the second half of that question. <laughs> sure. Well, you know,
0: the most common trajectory of grieving is actually that while we we may experience grief, we actually, for the vast majority of people, we don't ever lose the ability to sort of function in our life. And so over time, uh, the most common thing is that our grief is, you know, uh, pretty pretty constant. You know, small at the beginning and and sort of declines over time. When some of us experience great losses, we have a very intense, severe grief reaction initially, and you know you can imagine this. For example, if there's an unexpected loss, and even that trajectory, uh, this is sort of a, a similar one in the sense that we have this intense grief response initially, and then over time, it also declines. But there is a group of people that we become very concerned about as clinicians, and that is those who have this severe grief reaction, and there just isn't any change over time. So that a year, 18 months, two years later, their grief really hasn't changed. It is as though the person just died. And in fact, there may be ways in which they've adapted their life so that they are not doing meaningful activities, they're not spending time with living loved ones or deriving any joy out of any of their experiences, and so that group, which you know we we give this term prolonged grief disorder to, is a very small proportion of people who experience a death. So maybe one in ten uh, people who experience a death have this. A more unusual reaction where they simply don't see change over time. And for that group, our interest is really not in taking their grief away, as we've just said earlier, it's not possible to take their grief away. But Through targeted psychotherapy, we can help them to to develop new skills around how to manage and cope with these waves of grief that they experience and potentially how to... maybe engage in some of the things that we are avoiding so earlier you asked me about why it isn't just time that matters and what I meant to say is it is actually experience that matters experiencing who we are what is myself now do in the world and unfortunately some people um that they find the grief so painful that they begin to avoid conversations or they avoid places that remind them of their loved one. or they, you know, try to even avoid feelings or thoughts about the grief. Well, the trouble with that is when we're avoiding those experiences, our brain doesn't get a chance to understand what does it mean to live now. And it is through exposing ourselves, right, having the courage often in the in the context of a supportive therapeutic relationship to go ahead and try some of those things, to go ahead and try going out to dinner with your your friends that, you know, couples that you and your spouse used to go out with. And it's not going to be pleasant the first time. It is going to be painful but you know the second time it may both bring waves of grief and also interesting conversations where you think oh I, you know they mentioned this book i'd not heard of maybe i'll get that book and so it's this very slow upward spiral but if we continue to avoid experiences in in the present moment we never get a chance to learn what it is like now and to therefore figure out how to manage the, the painful aspects so that they become less interfering in what we want to do in life.
1: Now, that behavioral approach to prolonged or complicated grief yeah. uh, sounds very much like the way a therapist might help someone who is depressed and also avoiding situations that. Potentially, if not initially, uh, would give them some pleasure and stimulation. So, is there an overlap between prolonged grief and depression, or are they really distinct uh, from one another?
0: You know, they are distinct, although many people will have both comorbid depression and prolonged grief, just like we have people who have pro- uh, uh, have comorbid depression and anxiety. That's very common. Uh, so we will have people who have both, but they are also distinct. And so That is sort of separate from this mechanism that we are using to avoid whatever the feelings are, right? So um, uh, we might be avoiding anxiety, say, for example, if we know that, you know, speaking in a meeting in work is causing us just overwhelming anxiety, a therapist might help us to try and figure out a way to go ahead and engage in that anyway, to understand that the anxiety, while painful, will go away. Well, you know, it will rise and it will recede and that we have the skills to cope with it. Well, it's not so dissimilar for people who are trying to avoid grief and let's say the situation is going out to dinner, they might encourage us to go ahead and try that to recognize that the grief will rise and it will recede and that we have the skills to cope with that. And so the, the process of, of intervention might be similar, even when the content of what's being avoided might be different.
1: Are there differences in grief following different kinds of deaths uh, you mentioned intense grief when there's an unexpected death. Is there a difference, let's say, when there's an mm-hmm. intentional killing, a uh, murder, mm-hmm. a terror attack or or a suicide? Is mm-hmm. there a difference from someone who was sick with a terminal illness and then passed away?
0: We do know that there are some risk factors that increase the likelihood of more severe grieving. And as you said, an unexpected loss is one of those. We also know that uh, the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse, um, these are, are risk factors for more severe grieving than, say, the death of of a parent or uh, uh, a cousin or, or someone. Um, but having said that, it's not absolute. Um, so we see that even in Deaths, um, deaths by suicide, deaths from traumatic events, like you mentioned, um, we still see that there's a large portion of people who have a resilience. They respond very strongly. Um, and they also continue to find ways to, uh, you know, get dinner on the table and get out to work and, you know, kiss their children. Um, and so it's sort of a, you know, it, we look for patterns, just as you said, in, in many people's experiences Uh, And so we can come up with risk factors, and that might help us to sort of um, uh, follow or assess people who might be at higher risk. But each person is so individual. So for one person, the death of their best friend is going to cause just extreme grief because of perhaps the type of relationship they had. Perhaps this is the the attachment relationship that this person has over and above, even the one they might have with their spouse. So although they are risk factors, it isn't absolute that really what's most important is how is this individual loss affecting you and, and how to sort of think about, think about that, even though as clinicians we might look for patterns.
1: Well, that's a very important point because, uh, again, uh, it, we all, even if we ourselves are not experiencing a loss right now, we always know somebody in our mm-hmm. orbit who, who has. Mm-hmm. And uh, it. Uh, what I understand from what you're saying is it's not just the relationship um, closeness that we all could see. It's more about both the emotional tone and the meaning of the relationship in the survivor's life.
0: Yes. And we think about the idea that grief comes about Because of love, because of a bond that we have. And although, you know, we know that you have a very strong bond with a spouse, for some of us, we experience very strong bonds with, you know, unexpected people in our lives. And those attachment figures, it doesn't really matter what the category is that society considers them to be in. So we have losses that can be really profoundly affecting that sometimes society doesn't even sort of make note of. We we sometimes call this disenfranchised grief. So the person who loses an ex-spouse, for example, they may have been divorced for many years, and that death can be profoundly affecting for the person. or you know someone whose secretary dies and they have worked with that person every you know every weekday for decades that death of just a secretary can be profoundly destabilizing for a person and so i think it 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 does matter what is the meaning of this bond to you more than even just the category we might put that person or that relationship in mm.
1: You uh, you note one type of thinking that typically a- occurs in grief, counterfactual thinking. Mm. Uh, tell us what that is and what purpose it serves. Mm.
0: Well, I think you know the easiest way probably for listeners to relate to this is calling it what I what I think of as the would have, should have, could have thoughts. Right. So these are all the if only. I had gotten them to the hospital sooner. Uh, The doctor should have known to run this additional test, or if only they could have known that, you know, the train was going to be late. All of those sort of thoughts, kind of the undoing kind of thoughts, they're very common early when we're grieving. Uh, They just come... Unbidden, they just race around in our head. And while they're very common, for many of us, they tend to decrease in frequency. Um, These kinds of thoughts, these counterfactuals, they have a distinct problem, which is that, well, first, they have no answer, right? There are an infinite number of things that could have gone differently. But more importantly, if you think about it, each of those stories you might be telling, each of them ends in, and then my loved one lived. But the reality is that they didn't live, as painful as that is to acknowledge. And so we find this sort of uh, unexpected discovery that that science has has made which is that this kind of rumination these perseverative thoughts can actually function as a kind of avoidance because by you know being stuck in these thoughts that are just spinning around and around in your head it can actually mean that we're avoiding the feeling of the painful nature of the fact that they did die the reality of the death and so these thoughts, uh, they 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 can be problematic for people. Now, the would have, should have, could have aren't the only kinds of ruminations that people experience. Um, people can ruminate about the injustice of a death that happened, for example, or they can ruminate about, you know, am I normal that I'm having these feelings? And then, of course, as soon as you're sort of assessing whether you're having grief feelings a lot you're having more grief feelings because you're, you're attending to whether you're having them. So there are other patterns of rumination that can kind of get in our way as well. Um, and, and really, ultimately, it's that these, these thoughts aren't really helping us. They're not really helping us to restore a life that we might find meaningful. Uh, whatever we may choose to do that we find meaningful
1: But rumination, having those sticky thoughts that recur Mm -hmm. uh, over and over again, um, also characteristic of depression, Mm -hmm. um, you separate them, uh, your research and others that Mm -hmm. you cite separates them into two different parts, Mm -hmm. reflection and brooding. Yeah. So what's the difference and how... Which one's useful?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you're right. This comes originally from depression research. Um, Susan Nolan-Hexama did a lot of work thinking about what is the difference? uh, Because, you know, I think it's very difficult to say what's rumination and what's what we might call processing, right? So. It is important to think about how is this affecting me and what am I feeling and and those are uh, you know you could think of them as rumination and so. I will say first off that this is a really active area of research right now. And so I can't give you the perfect answer for starters. We don't know, you know, 20% rumination and 80% processing is the correct proportion of thoughts. (laughs) But, um, But I can say that one of the things that we've realized is that processing often leads us to a new way of thinking so if we're thinking about say a death that happened um, someone was terminally ill and we uh, you know have been thinking about that that moment of loss um, that moment of their death for a long time and sort of we just keep thinking about it with brooding, we usually are just sort of very focused on the emotional tone of those thoughts and sort of the, the awfulness of it or um, just going over it and over it again and again in our head. Processing, on the other hand, is is trying to understand it in a new way. And so I give a, an example in the book. My mother died after a, a long, long terminal illness um, with, of cancer. And for a long time, I used to think about, you know, that last moment, those last moments that I was in the room with her in the hospital. And I was always very focused on the guilt I was feeling at those moments, guilt that I hadn't been there, that I hadn't done more caregiving and so forth. And over time, I realized that there were actually many feelings that I was having. And and one of them was, I sort of remembered that, my mother actually had a really peaceful look on her face. And she was, you know, in that sort of comatose state that people are often in shortly before they they die. And I realized that, you know, even though I hadn't been there, she had still found a way to to come to this peaceful place. And by sort of adding to the processing of that, Uh, moment in my mind, I realized eventually that it didn't really matter whether or not I felt guilty or how much caregiving I had done, that ultimately what, what mattered was that she had been able to find a place of peace. And so you can see kind of the difference between just going over and over and over again versus sort of changing how you're understanding what's happening by maybe adding more information to it or uh, having an insight about a feeling you were having. Um, And sometimes this only comes about when we talk about these things with other people, because simply in the process of describing it, rather than it rolling around and around in our head in the same way, sometimes when we're describing it to someone else, we unexpectedly add new information. And then we're suddenly aware of having done that. Or occasionally people will respond to us with something that sparks insight in us that we hadn't considered before. I think this is part of why talking about our experience can be so useful.
1: Uh, Ruminating at some point, either in the grief process or in other circumstances seems, often seems to have a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, a person has to progress to the point where they can reflect on their own mental process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 another thing that seems to happen on its own is sleeplessness. Mm. Uh, it, what? Why is insomnia so common among the recently bereaved?
0: Mm. Well, I mean, The first thing is simply just to know that it is so common um, that people, you know, it is very normal that people are having that experience, difficulty falling asleep, but also difficulty with waking in the night or waking too early in the morning before one is fully rested. Um, I think, you know, one of the primary reasons that this is happening is Grief is very stressful for the body when we, when that bond is broken when we are separated um, from our loved ones, it causes all sorts of cortisol, the stress hormone, to increase. Um, our bro- our blood pressure tends to rise a little bit for a while, and so all of those things, you know, it's like drinking a cup of coffee and then trying to go to sleep. Um, so I think just recognizing ah this is a normal process, this is something my brain and my body will go through, can be helpful because it just it just normalizes it. Having insomnia for a few months, it, it's not going to kill you, you know? And so I think what's more important is your body is trying to find a way to regulate In the absence of this person who has been a part of the way you function. And so I think one of the best ways to think about insomnia is, ah, I am having difficulty now. I need to try and give my my brain and my body as much structure as possible. So for example, setting an alarm every morning to get up at exactly the same time, weekday or weekend it helps your body to sort of remember that there is a structure and that it can rely on that structure where things become problematic is, is sometimes when people introduce other things into their sleep process. So for example, The person who can't bear the thought of going to bed. And so they fall asleep in their chair watching television at night. And then at some point, of course, they have to get up from the chair and go to bed, and then they're laying awake. So, keeping the rituals around going to bed as similar as possible are some of the cues that our brain needs to find a way to re regulate in the absence of this person. Um, and and when that happens, when we are able to do that, for most people, sleep returns to normal eventually, uh, and it and it doesn't actually require medication intervention. It just requires these behavioral interventions to really help us to figure out how to re regulate. And you know, sleep medicine has come a long way. If one is having a great deal of trouble, it can also be worth consulting with a sleep specialist not just a general practitioner who might prescribe sleep medication but someone who understands the behavioral ways to treat sleep
1: and just knowing that it doesn't mean that you'll never sleep again that's right uh, is <laughs> is comforting because yeah. how, how do you know maybe you'll yes. one of the most terrible things also about depression, but but uh, certainly about grief, is the idea that I'll always feel this way. Yes. And the horror at the notion that if I don't feel that way, that means I'm forgetting the yes. person I lost.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. And I think sometimes even just thinking in the middle of the night when you're awake like that, thinking of the thousands of people who are also awake around the world because they're grieving too, I find can be a very comforting thought. It doesn't mean you're falling right back to sleep, but it can be comforting to know that you're not alone in that insomnia somehow. and and you are also correct that um, you said a second thing that I thought was was very interesting toward the end of that comment you made, Renee.
1: About the the wish, well, the fear that if yes. you feel better, that means you will have forgotten or care yes. less about, about this person, person you love.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And this is a really sticky one. This is a really difficult thing that people who are grieving deal with. And I think that, you know, there's no one answer for this problem that that grieving people face and honestly i don't really think you can give advice to a grieving person i think it sort of has to come through insight but if i can you know sort of lend someone my glasses as a you know this is one possible perspective on that issue we spend an entire you know, relationship together with this person. And then at the end of it, there's this incredibly painful portion, but it doesn't erase all the incredibly wonderful experiences that we had with that person. And so one way to think about it is, why is it only the painful part that you can't relinquish? Why can you not focus on all of the love and care and wonderful memories uh, that you had with the person so that you might do things to honor those parts of your relationship and not just the grief, the painful grief aspect of your relationship. Like I say, that won't work for everyone. But I think for some people that that might click for them.
1: And and that leads to uh, another important issue I, I'd like you to address, which is mm-hmm. what what is the difference between accepting a loss and being resigned to the loss? Mm,
0: such a good question and such a challenge. I have spent a lot of time sort of wondering about this myself. Um, I think that the issue here is that resignation suggests i am never going to feel better i accept that this has happened and i am never going to feel differently from how i feel right now and that's the resigned part i think accepting and uh, you know i use that as a as a an active verb i think accepting means this has happened and i don't know what it means for my life yet And and that stance means that you may still have yet to discover the way that it connects you to other people around you who may have experienced loss. That it might, by by accepting that this has happened, it may cause you to change some of your goals in life. It may cause you to say, you know, this job that I'm doing, it, it doesn't feel meaningful. And because I deeply understand now that mortality means we have a limited time, that I think I need to change the job that I'm doing. It, it can mean different things for different people. It may mean I need to start a scholarship fund in this person's honor. Whatever it is that it means, you're you're going to discover that over time. But accepting the fact that it is true is a part of discovering what it means that sort of grieving is a form of learning, as opposed to resignation, which I think is more about I accept that I feel this way right now, and I have no um, no inclination toward the idea it could ever be any different.
1: So resigned is is a dead end. It's yes. closed. That's it's right. A, it's a sentence. Yes you're, you're you have a life sentence to this grief cell. That's and right. Accepting is open. Yes. Oh, that's 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 very good. Uh finally Mary Frances how can friends best help someone who is grieving?
0: It's such a good question and and part of the reason it's a good question is because you know, being with people who are suffering is so difficult. There, There's no way to underestimate that it is really challenging to sit with someone who is crying uncontrollably, or who is completely numb. And, and you know, can't sort of put two words together to talk with you, so I, I don't want to underestimate the reasons that it is hard, or or even just it feels so awkward. Like, how do I talk about this with someone when it's so painful? And I think you know, there's a couple of ways to think about that. One of which is many of us, especially in Western culture, um, and and I think you know, industrialized cultures. Um, we think that the that our job as the person grief adjacent is to cheer them up, but that's not really the goal. And in fact, that can make you feel more isolated and estranged from, from the person who's who's trying to be helpful because that's not how you feel. And so you either have to sort of put on, perform that you, oh, thank you, I feel much better now. Uh, or just accept that they don't understand how you're feeling. And so the the goal really with being with someone who's grieving is simply to be with them. You don't have to give them the right advice. You don't have to uh, try to change their perspective so they'll feel better. You just have to listen to where they are in their learning curve about what is happening to them and to be supportive – and possibly lend them your hope, which is that, you know, I don't believe you will feel this way forever. And I also understand this is exactly how you're feeling. But I think the other way to think about it is, you know, all of us, whether we're grieving ourselves, or or we're trying to um Uh, support someone who's grieving, it's really helpful to have a big toolkit of ways to cope with grief. And so it can be equally important to say, you know what, let's go to the movies this afternoon. Let's just pretend none of this has happened and just go to this ridiculous comedy and sit there and laugh and eat popcorn. Um, That is an equally important coping strategy as it is to say, Hey, listen. I know you would like to clean out your closets. I am willing to be with you while you do that and make some of the hard decisions with you about what you're going to keep and what you're not. Uh, and and I'm happy to bring the Kleenex. You know. So right. having a big a big toolkit of strategies means that you can use different ones at different times, depending on what what's needed.
1: Your book, <laughs> "The Grieving Brain," will be helpful to so many people. Uh, but before I let you go, Mary Frances, tell us what you're working on right now. Mm.
0: You know, I I do a lot of different grief research studies. We're we're very interested right now. Um, one of my graduate students and I will probably start a project in the next I don't know six months or so. Um really focused on this idea of what is happening in the brain when we're not actually doing anything, we're just laying there, much like you might, you know, stop at a stoplight. And so looking at what are the the neural connections that are firing when someone is not being asked to do anything in the scanner, but often that can lead to moments of rumination. And so seeing if there's something about the neural connectivity that's different when people are ruminating uh, than, when, uh, than, than other people who, who are not as stuck in those thoughts.
1: Well, that will be very interesting. We'll look <laughs> for that research. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for writing the book and for talking with us about it today.
0: It was really a delight to have this conversation,
1: Renee. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.